Uh, as people have been following some uh, major Supreme Court decisions, very bad, uh, there was another one that is also very bad that I think people uh, have missed and um, might be relevant into our discussion. This is from Vox. Uh, the Supreme Court's latest opinion means innocent people must remain in prison. Clarence Thomas's majority opinion ensures that innocent people will spend years behind bars. By Ian Milheiser. Milheiser. The Supreme Court just ruled that at least some federal prisoners who are completely innocent must serve out their entire sentence with no meaningful way to challenge their unlawful conviction. One of the most fundamental principles of criminal law is that no one may be convicted of a crime unless the legislature previously passed a law making their actions illegal. If there is no law in the books that say marijuana possession is unlawful, then a judge cannot toss someone in jail because they were found with a joint. The Supreme Court's 6-3 decision in Jones v. Hendricks, handed down Thursday, does not directly attack this fundamental principle. Instead, it does so indirectly by prohibiting many prisoners from ever challenging their convictions in court. The case centers on Marcus D'Angelo Jones, a federal prisoner who was convicted in 2000 of possessing a firearm after being convicted of a felony. Nineteen years later, in Rahaf v. United States, the Supreme Court held that no one may be convicted under this felony in possession statute unless they knew they had a felony conviction at the time they possessed the gun. Jones says that he, incorrectly but genuinely, believed that his previous felony conviction had been expunged when he purchased a gun, and thus his conviction was invalid under uh, Rehalf. In essence, his claims that no federal law criminalized his possession of a firearm because he did not know he had a felony conviction. Thanks to Thomas's opinion in Jones, however, we will never know if Rahoff invalidates Jones's conviction. That is, if he is innocent of the crime that caused him to spend nearly a quarter century in prison because the court held that Jones may not challenge his conviction at all. We are in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're behind enemy lines. We're in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. This is Rob. This is your Highlands Bunker Podcast. Hello. As usual, holding it down for us is Super Producer Carl. Behind the table, making sure this all sounds, you know, high production value. That's what we're looking for. That's what he does. Our guest uh, today is uh, Claudia Trump. Uh, Claudia is the new executive director of Delaware's Innocence Project. And uh, we're going to talk about sort of all things uh, criminal justice. Um, thank you for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. Um, the first question we ask um, always is sort of just a background question. Um, w and I think it, it would be interesting to find out, you know, for someone who went to law school, how did they get into sort of this kind of sort of defense services, civil rights, um, challenging challenging the system and challenging institutions like how did how did you come about that i mean where did you grow up what was it like and how did you get uh how'd, the, how'd you get the fight in you oh that's an interesting question um i grew up my background would not tend to make you think that i would end up as a criminal defense attorney um i grew up my father was a doctor my mother was a teacher i grew up very privileged um in north of new york city and um, I didn't know any criminal defense attorneys. Um, when I was around 14, 
I was home alone with my parents, and we were the victims of a home invasion robbery. And two men came in with guns, wearing masks, uh, tied and bound me, tied and bound my parents. And um, from the very beginning, my parents, of course, were completely terrified that they were going to do something to me. Um, But from the very beginning of that event, I was very interested in why the people who were there, what had caused the people to come into our house, what was happening with them. I remember having an in-depth conversation with them about like what they were doing and why they were there and just really having a very human conversation with these two people who were, you know, committing this violent crime against my family. And when the police came, to investigate after they let us go, um, you know, after we were after we got unbound, um, the police came and interviewed my parents and me, and I was struck by how we all had completely different recollections of the incident. We described everything differently. Um, we described the people differently. We described the sequence of events differently, and that was my first really uh, feet on the ground experience of how unreliable eyewitness identification is and that is the foundation on which many crimes are um, prosecuted and it just became so apparent to me that human memory is so flawed and that our ability to perceive and remember and describe is so subject to error and I also felt that my reaction was so different than the average person which was really having in some ways some empathy for the people who had been drawn to such desperation that they were, you know, in the situation of committing this crime. So and they my did, parents thought I was crazy. So they, they did, they, I mean, as far as you know, speaking to him, you remember the conversation, and you remember that they were they were honest with you about, like, what the situation was, like, well, what their I just remember, motive was? Right, no, I remember, like, they had a gun, and I remember asking them, is that a real gun? And they were like, absolutely. And I was like, but is it is it loaded? And he was like, I'm not telling you that, you know? And so just having like a very real conversation with these people who had come in and it was a very strange experience, but I also felt that my reaction to it really, I mean, most people, for example, my parents were absolutely so enraged and just wanted nothing but justice and wanted them caught. And my feeling was like, I don't want them to be caught. I mean, I, you know, I just didn't think we were all fine. I would have felt differently probably if there had been some violence, you know, real violence. But I just felt like it was really a situation where it showed me that my reaction to the situation of crime was really something where my sympathies were with the people who were being, who were, you know, being, in this situation of desperation to be committing crimes. What was the, um, I mean, do you, do you, was there a, a conclusion? I mean, was, was there a, they were never caught. They were never, they caught. were never caught. They were wearing masks. They were never caught. And, um, so there you was don't no know, it was, just, it was just a, basically just a robbery. It was basically just a robbery, got some cash, got some jewelry, yeah, but not, but we were all fine. And I, I guess I was grateful for that, but it also just showed me, I think that was when I really understood that I was meant to be a criminal defense attorney. And I went, when I was in college, there was a um, internship where you could work for the district attorney's office. And um, I actually went and worked in um, the district attorney's office for a little while. And I quickly realized 
that just to get exposure to the criminal to the criminal legal system and I quickly realized that that was never a place that I could be because even when I was working there I was always rooting for the other side so I felt like I was I'm sort of just meant to be a criminal defense attorney and to help people who are ensnared within the criminal legal system yeah I, I remember um, I've told the story before I'm gonna tell it again actually because I'm doing an interview Friday and it's kind of a topic I want to discuss but um, I, re I remember having to explain to our representative who's going to be running for Senate, Lisa Blunt Rochester, what a class trader was. Mm -hmm. um, because we were, like, we, were in a, we were in a meeting and we were going to be lobbying for Medicare for All, I think. And everybody went around the table and it was all like friends of mine and, and comrades. And they were like, oh, I work for this group or I organize for this group or I do this. And I was just me at that time. I was actually just doing this part time and, and working uh, at a bank. And uh, I just said, yeah, I'm Rob Vanell, I'm a class trader. And she was like, what is that? <laughs> she and thought so, you were trading commodities of some yeah, kind. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, I have two upper middle class for five low, yeah. And I explained to her what it was, and, and I don't know. And, I, and it, it's just interesting hearing you tell that story because I, I've, I obviously never had an acute <laughs> sort of traumatic story. Um, I've had a few, like, you know, I got mugged one time. Right. And got in a fight, and it was like I realized like it was like fourteen year old kids. Mm -hmm. I was like a, I was like a, a man mm -hmm. fighting a child for my mm -hmm. wallet. Like mm -hmm. this is the stupidest. I felt so stupid. Um, but like having that click in your mind, and 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 I would say the majority of people, what whatever whatever their political persuasion, would be like angry, mm -hmm. you know, looking for like revenge. I'm gonna fucking do this and mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. I I simply did not have that reaction. And I had a very similar reaction to, to yours, and I, I always kind of was open to that idea, and it's just extremely interesting. Like, you, you sort of looked into it, and you're like, wow, well, why is this happening? Yeah. It's not just like, it's, something's happening here. Yeah, and what, what is the, I always want to understand, I always want to understand things on a deeper level of both, you know, if it's a case, I want to know exactly all the ins and outs of it and what went wrong and, and how we got to this. And I think that serves me very well in post-conviction work because you have to really dig very deep and get very um, into the complexities of a case in order to unravel it, especially after a conviction and after an appellate process is exhausted, as you were just talking about with the Supreme Court. It's almost as if um, they care not at all if people are innocent. You know, it's they care only that the sort of there have been procedural mechanisms in place that appeals have been had, um, and once those procedural mechanisms are in place and they've been exhausted, it's as if nothing else matters. Yeah, the procedural, the procedural, institutional, systemic part of it is more important than like the realistic part of it. Right, the actual factual part of what happened and right. the injustice of it. Yeah. Well, before we get to that, because I have I have a question that I think might get into sort of the minutia of that, because I'm, well, I'll tell you why when we get there. But before we do that, can we just have a, like a background of, um, of the Innocence Project in Delaware? I know it's pretty new here, yes. relatively, but I'm familiar with its efforts, and we can talk about that. But can you give everybody just a little background of what that is? Sure. So um, I think it's helpful to talk about sort of my experiences in innocence work in terms of before coming to Delaware in order to understand where Delaware is at. So I um, started a wrongful conviction project in New York 
in um, around 1999 um, and worked there for 25, worked for 25 years at that office doing wrongful conviction work. And the Innocence Project in New York, which is the national project, which we're not affiliated with, but we're part of the Innocence Network, which is a support group that helps with, um, give like institutional guidance to best practices and how to run an Innocence Project, but doesn't give us direct support. But that started in the early 90s. Delaware was one of only three states in the country that didn't have its own independent Innocence Project until 2018, when a group of professors at Widener Law School, um, at Delaware Law School in Widener, um, began investigating um, developing an Innocence Project. And because of that lateness of developing an Innocence Project here, what we're finding is that we have cases that date back very early. So our oldest case that we were looking at recently was from 1979. And so you can only imagine how much work there is to do here, how many cases there are since we began accepting cases in 2020. Because when we started, it was just, um, you know, sort of building an infrastructure to allow us to start taking in cases. And we started taking in cases in 2020. Since that time, we've had over 120 requests for assistance. And a lot of those cases involve the most serious crimes, um, you know, murders, uh, rapes, and really lengthy records and a lot of material that needs to be sifted through. So we have a lot of work to do here in Delaware. Yeah, I mean, uh, we were chatting a bit before we turned the microphones on. The fact that Delaware was, um, you know, sufficiently horribly behind in something like this is not, you know, it's par for the course here. We don't really... We don't question s systemic stuff or institutions. That's part of it. Um, so that's not a surprise, you know, at all to me. Um, I, the, the big question I have, and I started, like, just kind of looking into it, because around that time, I want to say it was 2002, 2003, I was in New York City for, like, a, a, a holiday, like a vacation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we were doing was to go see this play off-Broadway called The Exonerate. Mm -hmm. I saw that play. And I, had, I loved that and play. We just walked into it. I, I didn't see the – apparently I looked afterwards. I don't know if I saw um, the original cast, but I saw like Marista Hartzegay Hart do it. Uh, there was the, the guy who played the man from UNCLE. There was a lot of these great actors. And, and as you know, it's just – it's basically the story of several people who were exonerated from death row actually mm -hmm. um, for stuff. But it's just sort of monologues. Um, you know, uh, dramatic monologues. They just sit. The actors just sit behind, like a on a on a stool behind a podium, and do you know do the character and do the lines. It, it was, it's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. And and after that, I got this sort of one of my interests was to see how difficult it is. If it's pretty clear somebody's innocent. But how difficult it is to get over the systemic sort of institutional things, whether it be bad science. You mentioned uh, in your personal experience bad um, witness sort of stories that are all jumbled up and don't make sense. Uh, whether it's over-eager police in the street at minor levels and nobody really has the resources to fight them. But can you talk a little bit about like the different kinds of things you're needing to do to sort of get to the bottom of some of these things? 
because I know it's, I, you know, it can get a little technical, but I think it's important to talk about sort of just how difficult this work is, even when, as we talked about in the cold open, even when, like, innocence is pretty clear, it's just you're having to get at the, at the minutiae and the mechanics of the system. Yeah, I think there's a lot that um, goes into that question. It's a good question, and it, it's just how I like to think of it is that before, you're, before a person is convicted of a crime, they're presumed innocent. And the door to the, if you picture somebody in a room, like the door is open, right? I mean, you're in a pretty dire situation. You're in the room, but the door is open. After the guilty verdict, that door closes. There's no longer the presumption of innocence. And it becomes harder and harder as you go through the processes that the state affords you such as the direct appeal, everybody's entitled to a direct appeal where, which is based on the record that existed at trial and that was made at the time of trial. But what we see in the criminal legal system, which is just a reflection of our society at large, is that there's such inequality in our system. And so some people are given a really, you know, wealthy people generally are given a really good defense. They can afford investigators, they can afford experts, they can afford great counsel to challenge the state's case, and poor people cannot. And so oftentimes, and it, it has nothing to do with the quality of people who become public defenders, because I've been a public defender before I came here my whole life, my whole professional life. Um, but it has to do with the resources that the system has, it has to do with the caseloads that public defenders have. And the longer and the further you get away from that guilty verdict, the more procedural barriers are put in place to keep, to honor what the system calls finality, which is at a certain point, we don't really care even, which is what you opened with, we don't even care if you're innocent anymore because we just want it to stop and we just want finality and we want to not look at this case anymore. And so it's that interest in finality that drives how difficult it is to even where you know that somebody is innocent to get beyond what we call procedural defaults in the system, which is all in Delaware. We have really strict rules about time limits in which you can challenge your conviction. You might discover evidence 10 years after your conviction, but there's a time limit in which you can take it and so and bring it to a court. There are really strict limits about what they call successive petitions, which means once you've brought one post-conviction motion, there's a bar preventing you from bringing subsequent ones unless you can get through those bars by alleging that you're actually innocent. But another problem we have, which are larger systemic problems in Delaware, is that we don't have access to records, to police records. Um, police misconduct records are shielded in secrecy under Leobor. There's been some movement in that for those who, I mean, I, the which law, is a hot, this is a hot topic <laughs> right, in, this, right, right, in this area. Right, right. Yeah, law yeah. enforcement for officers sure, bill of rights. Sure. Um, there has to be, there has, that has to be, that law has to be modified. Um, but also just something as practical as just getting access to a record and court records is difficult after a while. So there's a lot of practical and legal barriers that prevent us from being able to help people who we even even after we truly believe that they're innocent. If that answers your question. Yeah, it, it no, it really does. That's that was what I was trying to, to, to get at. And I think your analogy of the door closing at the trial verdict is is a, is a great one for people to understand. 
because once that door closes, um, a lot of things look very obvious, like blatant proof of innocence or, you know, as in the Supreme Court case, it says if you didn't know, you know, it's a, you could tell that there was a genuine sort of misunderstanding. Th- those aren't keys to unlock the door. No. Innocence, like blatant innocence, doesn't unlock the door. You know, obvious stuff, you know, time could run out. It doesn't matter. The door is not going to unlock. Right. I and mean, so that's, that's, a, that's a perfect, I think, analogy for people to understand sort of what you're up against. Yeah. And, I mean, sometimes I just feel like um, I actually, like, feel like there's somebody, like, soldering the door shut, you yeah, know, yeah, like just yeah, making right. sure it's never... even open. Right, right. Just making sure it's absolutely, you can never get it open. You can never wedge it open. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, again, I think not to beat a dead horse, but the Delaware way is something that is, is just, just married and has this, this bond soldered, welded bond to institutions. It really doesn't matter what those institutions produce. Um, a lot of the times the institutions produce bad outcomes and we pretend the bad outcome came from something else. We're like, oh, look at these bad outcomes. We have to do the institution more. Well, what do you think? How do you think we got to those to begin with? Yeah, I think also what's interesting to me is I've had a few um, situations where, you know, it's absolutely nobody is disputing that the people who were exonerated or innocent, you know, the prosecution, this was in my prior work, prosecution admitted this is a mistake. These innocent people served 10 years in prison. These, you know, there's no question. And yet there is a feeling of, oh my, I had one judge said to me, this has never happened to me before. You know, I, this is the only case I know about where a, wrong, a person's wrongfully convicted. And I was thinking, well, it might be the only case you know about. But it's certainly not the only time it's happened, and yeah, I'm sure. I'm 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 sure uh, the judge was really going out there and, and investigating all of the other yeah. cases and being like, hmm, let's see. Yeah, right. Let me. I'm really concerned about this. But yeah, when I, you never look in the thing. You never see what's in the thing. Right, and I I think that it's just um, there is a resistance to really internalizing how fallible our legal system is because it's a scary prospect. You know, we want to believe, we want to believe that we have the best system in the world. We want to believe that we give everybody the fairest chances. We want to believe. And yet there's, you know, over 3,800 people on the National Exoneration Registry. um, And that's hard to deny that the system just is, does not produce dependable outcomes. Yeah. I think one of the things we're trying to do um, as you know, uh, Leo Bohr was, I do this with my hand, reformed. Yes. There was a reform. Um, it's garbage. Um, so our plan is to keep the pressure up, to, to try to continue to point out that, you know, nothing is available uh, to, tr- to even try to get justice, get the right decision. And also, it's, it really is, again, as we said before, when you look at other states, you know, 30, 35 other states on something we're working on will give you just like the basic information. Mm-hmm. Just help you find out, okay, who was, who was authorized, who got their, their rights to, as a law enforcement officer revoked, and maybe some just general information. Mm-hmm. We don't even do that. Mm. So 
So this pe people need to understand that um, all of the sort of hoopla about you know a new committee and some new rules uh, that will free up some information in the worst circumstances. And and Misty Siemens uh, wrote a great story in the call to sort of and she actually she made some nice charts too for people who are visual. You can see mm -hmm, like, what's mm -hmm. available when. Um, so I I, tell, I would always point people to that. Um, so there there's something there, but but we're gonna keep we're gonna keep pushing on that because that's that's something that again you said how how difficult it is. We we actually make it especially and uniquely difficult here, um, which is um, you know I give you a lot of credit for trying to crack that. You, <laughs> you picked the, you picked the door that had the most concrete behind it. You know, is it, the door was they had just passed reform in New York and they had opened the door a little bit to police records so I decided to come down here because well, I'm too easy. Yeah, yeah, it was too it was too easy. Yeah. So I decided to come down here for the challenge. But there is a certain um there is a certain challenge to starting something new, but I, I think Delaware is really a place that can use this service, really needs it. And so I wanted to come somewhere where I felt like my knowledge and my expertise could really be put to good use. And so that that's what led me here. Well, we're very pleased, very <laughs> pleased that you're here. So, speaking of being here, now mm -hmm. I'll get to like a fun question. Mm -hmm. um, I did give you a little bit of a heads up. <laughs> heads up. So, uh, we always ask people uh, who come um, to do this kind of work, um, social justice work, criminal justice organizing, whatever, from other places, um, how they feel about Delaware and Wilmington. And I can tell you that I'll give some people some shout-outs. So the ACLU Executive Director, Mike Brickner, came here from Cleveland. Um, we have a, a great legal director at the ACLU, Dwayne Bensing. He came here from out of town. And all of these people, yeah. I always love getting I, their met, stories. I've met with Dwayne, yeah. Yeah, and I, I just love getting these, these people's stories. So what – so you, you, you were – were you all, you were living in North Jersey and working in New York City yeah, for all that time? For all that time, yeah. So for twenty five years, whatever. Yeah. And then you you come. Are you living in the? You're still living in Jersey, but you're experiencing. You're getting the right. Wilmington I, experience. Right. I stay. I stay over. I, I'm regularly in Wilmington. I'm regularly in Delaware, and I'm going. You know, I'm really going all over the state because I think it's really important. Where our project is housed at Delaware Law School, but we cover the whole state. I think it's really important that everybody in the state know we're here, that we reach out to communities all over the state. So I've been doing, I said, I feel like a traveling salesman. I, I've been all over Delaware and I'll continue to go and speak to whoever wants me to speak about these problems and, and talk about them. Um, you know, I think Delaware is a really interesting place. My family, I grew up, my, um, my father's family's from Maryland. Um, oh, whereabouts? And, Lutherville, right outside of Baltimore. Okay, yeah. Um, so I spent my I spent my summers many when I was a child in Lutherville, Maryland, with my grandparents. And everybody in Delaware speaks like my grandparents. The accent is so familiar to me. And so sometimes when I'm here, I feel like, oh, is that my aunt Joe talking? You know, I love it. <laughs> yeah, because so. I get that too. When I'm in here, I really relax. Like sometimes I'll try to kind of in, in conversation, depending on the context, I'll try to kind of bring it down a little bit and, and speak a little more clearly. Right. But when I get in here, you know, I'm, I'm having a conversation, I'm smoking weed, I'm doing, <laughs> and I really, sometimes I get texts like after the show goes out and they're like, you said that I sound like you're like, just came out of South Philly sewer. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's a real, it's like a cross between sort of a South Philly thing and like a twang. 
Yeah. And I, and I can't, I'm genetically predisposed to it. Yeah, so there's something very familiar to me about Delaware because of the connection to to Maryland and the and just, you know, the, the food is, this, is similar. Right. The shore is similar. Yep. So it does feel, there's a part of me that feels very um, at home here. Uh, but there's also, you know, I was not familiar with Wil- Wilmington. I actually like Wilmington. I think it's like a really cute little city. I enjoy coming downtown and, and you know. I dig it. I, I mean, I like I said, I grew up here, so I've seen sort of different iterations. I think that's the important thing, and, and we have some stuff cooking in the call that will sort of shed a lot of light on this. But there's been different iterations of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, there's, there's things about this one I do not like, um, but there are things about it that I do. And I think that, you know, we have to, you know, I'm not, I'm okay taking the good with the bad because I I don't want to be a total sort of like anti-development, anti-growth. Like I would like nice new stuff if Mm -hmm. we can accommodate that Mm -hmm. or, you know, allow people. It's just like, who, who do we allow to build the nice stuff? Who benefits from it? Uh, where is it built? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a lot of stuff gets built from, like, <clears throat> like Rodney Square, like 10th Street. 10th Street South, mm-hmm. but nothing really gets built 10th Street North. Mm-hmm. And they're still going to the, to the Christina River, over to Christina River, into, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like, yeah, I definitely like the fact that there's live music. I could probably every night I could go when, when I used to not be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I mean we have a uh, we have a corporate real estate developer as a mayor, so we're getting the full the full brunt of you know fancy shit in the fancy neighborhoods and the police crackdown. Yeah, I mean, I, you probably noticed that too. Well, I mean, I one thing that struck me when I came here is that there's really um, a lot of policing in in Wilmington, you know, and the people and communities we serve are, you know, um, there's just a lot of police presence, and I, I think it's like that, you know, in most cities that certain certain areas are over policed and yeah, others I, are not. I think about it when I when I. You know, I read a book about um, when Matt Taibbi was good. Uh, I read a <laughs> book about Eric Garner's uh, killing by mm-hmm. the police, and and really the whole from the from the system side of it, it was the fact that they were building a fancy uh, high rise apartments by near this park in this neighborhood that really didn't have that stuff before, and so there was a bigger and bigger police presence, and the the, the low level sort of criminal element in this park was getting harassed more and more, mm-hmm. and then this is what, this is the end result of that. Mm-hmm. And I think about that all the time in Wilmington, because we have, obviously the Wilmington police have, you know, it's been changing a little bit recently, with mm-hmm. some, some police getting, you know, some having to take some accountability for stuff. Mm-hmm. Sam Waters, uh, Jimmy McCall, um, but we have the police crackdown. We also have the downtown visions, which is a direct line to the police. You know, you see, you know, an, an unarmed person in a yellow jacket and you're like, well, that's just an unarmed person in a yellow jacket. Um, they can call a call center and have the police there like that. Mm-hmm. And that's actually why they're there. Mm-hmm. And then we have the black shirts, the full BPG uh, security police. So if you go to a Blue Coats basketball game or you go down to the, the 76ers G League arena, or you go to, say, the Chancery Food Court, some big BPG production, you'll see the security there is actually in black. They're also BPG security, and also, just like Downtown Visions, can 
make it happen when it needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's a it's a real. There's a the 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 man is coming down hard mm-hmm. in downtown Wilmington. There's no question about it. Mm. But uh, again, I'm I'm glad that you're in. It is nice that it is nice that the growth is actually bringing some like like the Innocence Project. We weren't, <laughs> even, we weren't even doing it. Yeah. Like five years, four years, which is 2018. Yeah, 2018. 2018. Yep. So yeah, I mean, I do think that the growth, no matter where it is from a like a corporate real estate standpoint, also raises this uh, raises the stature a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, did, did you see today that? Uh, Joe Biden's going to have his um, his reelection campaign. Yeah, I, I heard that a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah it's been talked be about really, since like April. I think. Yeah, I think it's going to be really busy. Yeah, it's going to be horrible. <laughs> it's going to be, be the traffic's going to be a, terrible. A bunch of fucking geeks and dorks <laughs> fucking going around. They, all they do, they send text messages for their job. That's what they do. Mm. Or they like you know they arrange phone calls or whatever. Yeah, and they're going to be all over you know Bardet Steak. And they're going to be ruining everything. Uh, if they show up, here's the thing. Little, here's a little tip. Okay. If you're here in the evening, not in August, to take August off because it's a, it's a respectable business. Live music at the Nomad Bar uh-huh. on Orange Street. You just walk in, no cover, Wednesday through Saturday. If, if people stay here after 9 o'clock, that's uh-huh. the thing. Are these people going to take the train back to Philly every day? Probably. I bet you they are. I bet you they are. Yeah, or back good. to DC. You know what? Get the hell out. <laughs> we don't want you. Leave here. it for leave it for us. Get the hell out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how can people um follow the work that you're doing? Uh well before we even do that, what are, are there some uh cases now that you're really into that you sort of want to get the word out about? And then secondarily, just in general, how can people follow the work of the Innocence Project and donate and just help in whatever way they can sure so the best way i think we have social media handles um but the best way to follow us and find out about us and research is to go to our website which is um www.innocencede.org and i would caution people to definitely go to innocencede.org because i have heard that people when they um google like delaware innocence project they end up at the national project and that's really not going to tell you what's going on here in our project um, we have a number of cases that we're researching and investigating. Um, I don't really want to talk about clients because oh, I don't, different. yeah, you know, I don't, you know, I haven't passed it by them and I don't want, I'm very careful and cautious about ever revealing or talking about individual cases without specifically the client's consent. But we have a number of old, we have um, a couple of homicide cases that we're developing that we feel really strongly about. We have um, an old arson case, which we feel the, our client was involved, accused at a very early stage um, long ago of an arson, which we don't even believe they demonstrated that the fire was intentionally set. And then they came to a conclusion that our client was guilty of the arson very early in the investigation and then just interrogated this client for hours upon hours upon hours um, to extract a confession and, and it's just it's hard to watch we just feel like it was it, this person has been serving for a very long time for something that probably wasn't even a crime it was probably an accidental fire 
but they came to the conclusion very early in the investigation that it was intentionally set and that our person was involved in it. So that's one that we're, we're developing. As far as um, support, supporting the project, what we really need right now, and people always say, like, I've, when I go around the state, they're like, you know, nobody wants to feel that you're just asking for money. Um, but that is really something, this type of work is so labor intensive for all the reasons that we've been talking about, the gathering of records, the time it takes to go through records, the, 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 just the driving around, the gas to go down and visit people at Smyrna to, you know, interview. The time is just so unbelievable. And that all, to do a DNA test costs $10,000. That is all, um, Need, we need money for all of that. And so if you if people believe in this work, they should really um, support it. And we do not we don't get any money from the state of Delaware. So we really rely on individual donations to fill in the gaps of our funding. And we, we are housed at Widener Law School, so we don't have that type of overhead. But we have a lot of expenses that we need to fill. And it's always whenever you're in a small nonprofit, it's always asking, you know, like, how are we going to pay for this? How are we going to pay for that? And we're, unfortunately, like many Innocence Projects, we're in a triage system, right? Because we don't simply don't have the resources to tackle every case with the vigor that we would like to. And so more money and more support results in more resources, which means that people, the average time that it takes to exonerate somebody right now is between 8 to 10 years. And that's a long time in prison for a crime that a person didn't commit. And so what we're trying to do is to get to those cases earlier, get a thorough review earlier, and make cut down that window in which people have to serve for, you know, long sentences if they're innocent. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just going to take, I'm going to do a little commentary. I'm going to take it a step further before we close out. Um, I think people really need to think about situations where, you know, there are a lot of people who are innocent. There are a lot of people who are overcharged. There are a lot of people who might be guilty. But we have to look at what we're doing in a completely different way. Um, you know, some of the, I think I said it earlier, or, or you said it, we were talking about it, like some of these bad results are actually coming from what we're already doing. And people don't really want to reckon with that. Uh, as you said, once the system is done, they don't really want to have to have to come back and like reflect on how it worked. They just want to, like the judge said, like, I've never heard of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, because you've never happened. thought, you've right. never fucking thought about it one time. Um, because that's the way the system works. You're not supposed to think about it. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing, too, is people, I, I'm trying, I'm always in all of situations like this, even though I sort of bad mouth and tease and make jokes about, like, you know, powerful political people. Like, the fact of the matter is, a lot of them can do no other. Like, they're there. You know, these conversations have to be made as assuming they can't they can't even do anything else. You know, it's not about an individual person's choice. You know, the judge in that case said that sincerely because it never occurred to the judge to ever even reflect on one thing that happened mm -hmm. in the courtroom over well, 15 years or 20 years. Whatever. Closer to 30. Closer to 30 years. And so it's just, a, it, I, I think it's, it's difficult to frame things this way. And it's hard to think about them this way, but you have to think about them this way. You have to kind of get out of the idea that, like, the Supreme Court idea. Well, the system did it, and so it must be right. Well, it's, it's clearly not right. Well, you just throw your hands up.
Right. You know, it's, it's not going to fly. Yeah, I think it's painful. It's a painful reckoning to understand how flawed our legal system is. And as I said before, I think people want to believe that it's not, but it is. And there, another thing that we're working on is, um, you were talking about Leobor, another thing we're working on is an exoneration compensation bill because they're right now in the state of Delaware, again, it's one of a few states that doesn't have any compensation for people who have been wrongfully convicted and exonerated. Um, so in most other states, if you are convicted and you are exonerated, there's a recognition that you deserve something for that time. You know, you're a 17-year-old boy and you go to prison for 20 years and you come out and you're a 36-year-old man, but you're not even a 36-year-old man because prison distorts your development and makes it so you're almost incapable a lot of times of functioning at any level in society. And so what do we do? What What is the remedy for that? And I think that in order, it's just basic fairness and decency that if somebody is a victim of our system in that way that they need to be compensated yeah completely agree um it's it's a shame because i think in some circumstances for for folks in a position where they deserve some compensation it you know you can make a, um, a humanitarian sort of plea uh, our system even if even if somebody gets exonerated that they're not guilty of the thing that they were convicted of. It's almost like our mindset is like, well, did they deserve it, though? Right. Are they guilty of something? Yeah, they're guilty, guilty of, why of something. They, why did the cops arrest him in the first yeah, what place? What was he doing there? Yeah, like, people yeah, really got yeah. to rattle their minds a little bit. Right, like, well, I think that's a protective mechanism, again, yeah. to say, uh, we're having a gala September 14th, um, which you know people can buy tickets for, and we're having a, an author who wrote a book you can go to prison even though you're innocent. And I think there's a perception that, you know, this is a problem that's never going to touch you or your family. But it's amazing, as I've been speaking to people throughout Delaware and throughout, you know, the country when I when I speak to people about this, it's, it's amazing how many people have been touched by wrongful conviction. They have a cousin who was accused, or they have, you know, a distant relative or a friend who was wrongfully accused. And a lot of times, you know, people can avoid the worst because a lot of the people I'm speaking to have resources. But if you do not have resources and wrongful conviction is a problem that disproportionately impacts the poor and black and brown communities, that's just without any, there's no debate about that. And so this is an issue of social justice as well. It's not just um, about the fallibility of our legal system. Claudia, thank you so much for, for coming in. I very much appreciate it. Been a I'm, pleasure. I'm glad you. I'm glad you hit me up. I know I, I got to give a shout out uh, to our man Benjamin, who hit me up um, a couple months ago, and said he was doing this volunteer work for Innocence Project. I was like, I didn't even know Delaware had it. <laughs> I'm like, bro, we gotta we gotta hook it up. He was like, well, we gotta hook it up with somebody who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> so I I appreciate you, Benjamin, for real. Um, thank you very much uh, for for making this happen. So you got a you got a, a an associate producer role on this one for sure. Um, Carl, thank you for everything you're doing. Are you still, I mean, like, the, like the, the, the session's over. We're in the dog days of summer. Even Network Delaware takes August off. And you're back there with your laptop, second laptop, just, just banging away, banging away at work. I mean, <laughs> can you give, can you take a, take a breath, you know, have a nice, have a nice, like a Sprite or something? Only after 10 p.m. Only <laughs> after 10 p.m. That's not healthy, my man. Well, we'll okay. talk about it. We'll talk about it. Claudia, thank you uh, once again. And um, everybody, you know how to hit us up. 
It's patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. It's at Highlands Bunker on Twitter. The Patreon has all buttons there where you can you can help us out. Just like Claudia was saying, you know, everybody needs a little bit of a little bit of support, a little bit of that monetary support. So think about that and uh, think about the fact that left is best.